0: Please join me in welcoming our fantastic panel for tonight uh, on Molyneux's problem.
1: Okay, welcome and thank you so much for coming along this evening. So our main topic for the event is the thought experiment, Molyneux's problem, but we're hoping to expand the discussion a bit to explore a broad set of issues around perceptual imagination, blind and visual experience, and perception and representation in the arts. Molyneux's problem, sometimes called Molyneux's question, is a pretty popular philosophical topic that began in 1688 with a letter sent by the Anglo-Irish scientist William Molyneux to the philosopher and political theorist John Locke. William Molyneux had a number of reasons to be interested in vision, optics and blindness. He was working on an important treatise on optical lenses, but perhaps more relevantly he had married a woman who became ill and lost her sight a few weeks after they married. Locke never acknowledged Molyneux's initial letter, never got back to him, but Molyneux did eventually succeed in getting a correspondence going and raised his now famous question again, this time with a better result. So, Molyneux's problem asks about a person who has lived their whole life blind and can reliably identify a sphere and a cube by touch. You might notice that we have some props. (laughs) Um, Would such a person, Molyneux asked, if instantly given perfect sight, be able to recognize the cube and the sphere by sight as the objects known from touch without touching them. So this question was incorporated into Locke's next version of his very famous book, The Essay Concerning Human Understanding. And since then, the problem has been picked up and discussed by a host of important subsequent thinkers. Indeed, it's become one of the key thought experiments in the philosophy of perception. And the literature on it now includes a a number of interesting empirical experiments as well. So, Malney's question has prompted many other questions about the history of philosophy and its treatment of disability. So much discussion of blindness and very little appeal to the blind experience or to blind expertise. It also raises interesting questions about the ability of all perceivers to imagine perceptual experiences very different from our own. This idea has consequences for philosophy, but also for the arts, and how we present our ideas to one another, which we'll discuss a bit as well this evening. So, let me introduce our speakers, so on the end here we have Barry Ginley, who is a quality and access advisor to the V&A Museum, uh, Marieline that that right? yes, okay. <laughs> is the author of Moliny's Problem, Three Centuries of Discussion on the Perception of Form, and Brian Glenny is, assist- is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Norwich University, and he's also published a lot of stuff on uh, Problem. Okay. So I'm going to begin uh, with Marianne. Uh Can you please tell us a little bit about this, this philosophical topic that's known as Molyneux problem?
2: Okay. Thank you for inviting me and thank you all for being here. Uh, tonight we will be discussing the Molyneux problem. Uh, first I tell you something about Molyneux. Uh, he was founder of the Dublin Philosophical Society and he was a fellow of the Royal Society of London. He had a lot of interests. He recorded weather data, calculated eclipses, demonstrated instruments, and translated philosophical works into English. His best-known work, you taught already Dioptrica Nova, about lenses, his most controversial one is the case of Ireland's being bound by Acts of Parliament in England, stated, and that was condemned as... Quote, of dangerous consequence to the Crown and people of England by denying the authority of the King and Parliament of England to bind the Kingdom and people of Ireland. Molyneux was not pub- published, but his book was ceremonially burned at Tyburn by the public hangman. About the problem, Claire already uh, told it. Uh, Let's travel back in time to 17th century Ireland. Close your nose, eyes or ears, (laughs) for a second. And there he is, a quite handsome guy of 32 years old. I will brandish for you sitting behind his wooden desk writing with a dip pen I suppose a letter to John Locke, the English philosopher and physician, regarded as one of the most influential Enlightenment thinkers and known as the father of liberalism whom Molyneux admires and to whom, he, to whom he proposes the problem that made him famous Claire already thought first uh, letter uh, Locke didn't reply but a couple of years later uh, he did and then Locke reacted with enthusiasm, and he said, your ingenious problem will deserve to be published to the world. Shall I repeat the, the problem? Or you, yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay. okay. Here it is, suppose a man born blind and now adult and taught by his touch to distinguish between a cube and a sphere, so as to tell when he felt one and he felt the other, which is the cube, which the sphere? Suppose then the cube and sphere placed on a table, uh, and the blind man to be made to see. Query, whether by his side, before he touched them, he could now distinguish and tell which is the globe, which the cube.
1: So just to slow down and make sure everyone has the problem on board, the idea is, what, you have this person who cannot see, has never been able to see... We imagine that they understand shapes with their touch as well as anyone else would, perhaps even better because maybe the attention is is not so focused on the visual. You imagine that somebody can click their fingers and turn this person's sight on, and you want to know what the answer is, yes or no, will this person be able to, when presented with these objects in sight and not allowed to touch them, be able to say which is which. Is that
0: roughly right?
2: Yes, that's Okay. okay, that's right. What do you think, people in the audience, Will the man be able to distinguish the objects by sight? Who says yes, he can. Raise your hands. Well, I see 10, 20. Let's say quarter, half of the, the audience. Who says no, no way? <laughs> Slightly the same amount, I think. <laughs> mm. Who couldn't decide? Yeah, also if few. We'll ask you at the end. <laughs> And both. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you, you are all in good company, for all positions are taken by learned men. And sorry, ladies, in those times there were not many women philosophers. And those who did a good job are mostly hidden away by historians. So if you ever find one who answered Molino's question, please feel free to contact me. (laughs) And... Claire also told you about some reasons, possible reasons, for Molyneux to uh, formulate the problem. Interested in optics, interested in psychology of sight, his wife has lost uh, her sight in the first year of her marriage. Uh, The French extract of Locke's essay concerning human understanding. Uh, That book was aimed at rejecting the doctrine of innate ideas advocated by René Descartes a so-called rationalist who regarded reason uh, as a chief source of knowledge. <coughs> uh, Locke, however, believed that at birth mind is a blank slate and that knowledge is determined only by experience derived from sense perception and that made him a so-called empiricist. So there were two streams, uh, uh, two doctrines, one saying, well, we have a lot of... Uh, Ideas in our minds already when born and the other hand just uh, through the way of all our senses we get experience and that builds our knowledge. Uh, Locke also distinguished between ideas we acquire by means of one sense and those we acquire by means of more senses. The idea of color, for example, can be only acquired by sight whereas the the ideas of space, motion, and figure can be acquired by means of more than one sight. Sense, sorry. Um, Now, as Molyneux knew the essay, it seems highly probable that this problem was motivated by Locke's exposition of the ideas of persons born blind and the ideas of figure, which can be acquired by means of sight and touch. In addition, and that's quite interesting, I think, Molyneux may have been inspired by the 12th century philosophical novel Hein Ibn Yagdan, and that's written by Ibn Tufail, an Arab Andalusian uh, Muslim polymath. I have it in Dutch here, if you want to see it afterwards you can uh, take a look at it. The book tells about a feral child raised by a gazelle and living alone on a desert island. Uh, for in the introduction of the novel uh, you can find a passage about a man born blind, man born blind whose eyes, eyes are opened. And this book became a bestseller throughout Western Europe in the 17th century. And it's said to have had an influence on Locke, on Locke and maybe also on You. Now, if you have a look at the solutions <laughs> of the problem, Uh, Then we can see that in the first instance philosophers regarded Molyneux's problem as a kind of thought experience which was to be dealt with by ratiocination alone, for they considered it impossible that a man born blind should be able to acquire sight. (coughs) The arguments put forward for the solutions were usually concerned with the relation between visual and textual sensations. Some, like Molyneux and Locke, were of the opinion that the relation between those tactile and visual sensations of the form of objects was not evident directly, but had to be learned. And that the blind man at first sight would not be able to say which was the globe, which the cube, whilst he only saw them. The blind man had to learn by experience that what affects his touch so or so Like a protuberant angle or the smoothness of the globe, must affect his sight so or so. On the other hand, you had people like Singe Lee and the famous Leibniz, who answered affirmatively. They also were of the opinion that the visual and textual sensations of an object differ from each other, but they thought that their relation is necessary and perceived directly or that they had something in common which is either observed directly or inferred by reason. Uh, Most answers given so far in the 18th century differ from each other partly because of the different epistemological positions. So if you think uh, knowledge uh, is uh, is innate or uh, received by experience partly because of the different interpretations of the problem. Uh, Some people thought that the man had to answer directly, others that he could make use of his memory and reason, and yet others that he should be at liberty to view all sides of the object by walking around them. And some thought that the man should be told in advance that he would be presented with a globe and a cube, whereas others did not. So, in fact, then you have a lot of different uh, questions or problems.
1: So you start with this quite general pared down question from Molyneux which is, imagine the scenario, answer yes or no, uh, but there's, it turns out upon inspection that there's loads of different things that can vary what your answer will be, so you might think uh, you would say no to the question, if you have a certain set of attitudes, but maybe if you let the person walk around the room and maybe experience all sides of the object, that that's gonna change the perspective or something. So it's, yeah, you have this one simple project at first that uh, upon other philosophers paying attention to it seems to get more and more complicated, is that?
2: True, that's true, yes. Okay, the discussion uh, starts to change in 1728 when the English surgeon and anatomist William Chesseldon published an account of what a congenitally blind-born boy had seen after his cataracts had been removed. And a cataract is if your natural lenses are clouded. The publication led philosophers to regard the Molyneux problem no longer as a thought experiment, but as a question that could be answered by experimentation. Cheselden noted that when the boy was first able to see, he did not know the shape of a thing and could not recognize one thing from another, regardless of how different in shape or magnitude they were, for example, a cat or a dog or something else. Some philosophers, like Voltaire and Diderot, were of the opinion that Cheselder's information confirmed the hypothesis that the blind man restored to sight would have to learn to see and to distinguish the objects. Others, however, such as Lametrie and Diderot, regarded Cheselder's account as wholly ambiguous in its implications. They pointed out that it was possible that the boy had been unable to make valid perceptual judgments because his eyes had not been functioning properly, because his eyes had not been used for a long time, or because he didn't have had enough time to recover from the operation. They further pointed out that Cheselder had perhaps asked the boy leading questions. Or that the boy had not been intelligent enough to answer the questions, and what he did in fact was posing interesting uh, questions about or, or putting uh, asking criteria for uh, psychological experiments, some methodological questions.
3: So do we know much
2: more about what actually happened with Cheselden and the boy? I mean, was it what you know?
1: Is what was he? He restores the site, and then what kind
2: of questions does he ask, or what does he is he messing with shapes? Is he? Yeah, he he just asks him questions, uh, what he can see. But it, it, it's not a an report in which he uh, says what questions he asked and uh, writes the answers down. He he made the report later, so we we are we don't know if it's uh, truthfully if he can. Uh, it's not quite, um, quite clear, okay. but he gives examples uh, about uh, seeing a house, seeing a dog, seeing other objects and the boy didn't know in the beginning at all uh, to discern uh, objects. I'm just shorter about the next uh, century so it will not take long uh, what I'm saying. In the 19th century we can discern several new developments uh, ophthalmologists performed experiments, which showed whether the patients were be able to f- see form, size, distance, etc. So they made special experience for it. Tesla um, didn't know the Molyneux problem, so he didn't give a cube and a sphere to his uh, uh, to the boy. But these ophthalmologists, some knew about uh, Molyneux's questions, and so they tried to do experiments on it. But also here we don't have the yes or a no because the cases could not be easily compared since the pre- and the post-operative circumstances differed to a great extent. Other specialists such as Adam Smith and Johannes Müller, began to consider observations concerning the sight of newly born animals, so that's a, a new aspect, and babies, Uh, when discussing Molyneux problem. Here too no unanimous solution was given, amongst other things because of the different interpretations of the problem. Now in the 20th century the main interest in the problem has been historical. It has also turned up frequently in textbooks of psychology, ophthalmology, neurophilosophy and also in Publications on very diverse disciplines like mathematics, architecture, literature, art, sport, whatever, and a new way of approaching it has to do with using sensory substitution systems.
1: Can you tell us what they are?
2: Uh, one of the first ones was that people uh, made a kind of um, uh, apparatus on the back, uh, on your back, and then they gave kind of signals. Uh, in the form of a square or uh, a circle and then the idea was that a person uh, getting those uh, stimuli stimuli uh, would be able to learn at least uh, uh, those uh, figures. Okay. Now, perhaps Brian will uh, tell more about the contemporary variations of the problem and Barry can uh, tell perhaps about his experiences. Yeah, well, so maybe at this, this point, is, uh, thank you so much for that introduction. Just to invite the other two, if there's
1: anything that you wanted to say to, you know, about the kind of introduction, the setup, yeah. that you think would be helpful well, the, for people to
0: understand. Like. Oh, let me jump in and then, please, Barry. Um, there's also this strange reference in biblical literature. Is anybody familiar with um, the, the man that Jesus had to heal from blindness twice in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus, of course, spits in some dirt and puts it onto a blind man's eye and then asks, what do you see? And the blind man reports that he sees people, and there, in fact, were his friends there. But he says that they look like trees. Strange, right? So then Jesus just directly spits in the eye of the blind man. And then it is reported that he fully sees. So I guess if you believe, you know, the Bible, you have to answer no.
1: Is that what it would be? Or yeah, I guess there's only one cure maybe for that. And <laughs> um, Barry, is there any, any thoughts on the kind of introduction? Or I know the Molyneux problem is not your, you know, background or expertise. But if you if you wanted to share anything
4: with us. Um well i I'm just thinking if if that's a way of curing sight uh, <laughs> sight losses being having spat in some sand and so on, I think i 'll <laughs> see if the NHS uh, supplies that yeah. um, but um no I, I find it interesting because of uh being blind myself and um, and hearing these different theories and, and so on um, I must say um from my point of view um if I got my sight back now, I personally would be able to tell you the different shapes because I have that visual memory from before when I lost my sight when I was 26. But for somebody who's totally blind, they wouldn't. They would have to learn, they'd have to be shown that object.
1: Okay, so you're a no out the gates on the thought experiment? Yeah. Okay. Well, oh, that's a good. good instinct to have. Just early on, are there any questions, especially if there's anything sort of to clarify any of the setup or anything? Because otherwise, we could move on to the more okay so temper. yeah so we 've got this really nice introduction in which we see the history of the problem and we see how these different philosophers have weighed in on it so you 've got a camp of people who very strongly feel this no answer, and then lots of people who are really committed to a yes answer, uh, I guess all of whom, assuming they have a, you know a, a, a perfect idea of what it would be like to go from being blind to not being blind, which probably merits a bit of attention as well um, but uh, as Marilyn said, it starts out as this sort of theoretical thought experiment and then becomes something that people are trying to do actual sort of more scientific-style experiments on. So, Brian, um, would you tell us a bit maybe about how the problem develops or how sort of treatment of it changes?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can pick up on some of the things that were said about the 20th century. Um, there's a, there was a strange set of experiments by a fellow in, at the University of Washington with babies. like We're talking like 40-hour-old like just popped out type situation. Is that, maybe, don't want to visualize that, but whatever. He would have a facial gesture with his mouth, and I'll do the three but of this them. This is the scientist. This is do. the scientist would do this to the baby. There's actually a picture of him, like holding the baby like this. Um, clearly not a father, right? Although, because then the baby barfs on you, so, you, you know, real fathers know it's, you hold the baby the opposite way. But anyway, I'm, I'm trying to be funny, but time. it's failing. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> well, show me your face, though, because I guess I should describe it for the, yeah. for the podcast. so here it is. <laughs> so you're it?
0: holding the baby out, and, and then you go. It's called a tongue protrusion. You do that. Okay, sticking out your tongue. Mm-hmm. And then you do the uh, O with your mouth, and then you purse your lips like that. And the infant could perfectly imitate these mouth gestures of the scientist. And he did it with over 60 infants over the period of several years. And what this suggests is that the visual impression of these different like facial gestures transfers to the muscles of the infant, who, of course, the infant has never seen its mouth, right? I mean, it's naive to the way that its mouth looks. So it must be transferring to... Uh, some sense, some muscle sense. I think it's called proprioception these days. So he thought this is a good indication that some information does transfer from one sense to another, right? From the visual sense to proprioceptive sense.
1: So it's the thought with the when you're making the sort of flat shape with your mouth that the baby is seeing something flat, yeah. recognizing it to be flat, and then trying to
0: produce a yeah.
1: flatness with its own mouth.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. you know, that sounds it's it's adorable. I, I, I did this. I have four kids. And I did it with all of them, and, I, and they never imitated me.
1: <laughs> Were you, did you face them the right yeah, direction? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, any more? Oh, oh then no? there's another infant experiment that was done very recently. You would tactually habituate a cube or a sphere into the baby's oh, right hand. I guess that mattered. Uh, so actually, I did this with my third boy um, at 10 hours old. Put that in your pipe. melts off. Anyway, so I actually habituated him to a cube. And Does that it's, mean you just you, you made him hold You made key? him hold it, okay, but he right. wants to grip it. It was so strange. And after about a minute, and this was reported in the scientific article, they literally, like, throw it away. Like, they're, like, I'm done with it. Try it. I swear. It's just really weird. So you actually habituate them to one shape, and then you dangle two shapes before their eyes, the cube and the sphere. And then you measure their looking times, how many times they look at each shape and how long they look at each shape, and they will look towards the novel shape more often and more times, suggesting that the tactual habituation did transfer to the vision because of course they 're looking at the new shape more often.:
1: Can what I do you be, think about that one? Can I be difficult? So It seems like in the two cases we 're having Opposite intuition. So yeah. the, the child producing the same thing is seen to be indicating that there's a transfer being made. But in the second experiment, it looks like them fixating on the opposite thing. Yeah. It's,
0: so I'm worried about that. Well, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah. There was another experiment with pacifiers. So there was a bumpy pacifier and then a smooth pacifier. You would habituate them, let's say, to the bumpy one right in their mouth, and then you would dangle. <laughs> a bumpy shape and a smooth shape in front of them. Well, guess what? They didn't like the novel. They didn't like the smooth shape if they were habituated to the bumpy. They would look at the bumpy more frequently. And what that suggests, and I mean, this would be the, I'm like anticipating your criticism here. What that suggests is that something about the mouth really likes familiarity. And something about the eyes likes novelty. And that's why they're in some sense, you know, they want the novel information with their eyes, but they want the familiarity with their mouth. And, of course, we probably know why that's the case. Uh, because and, of that. and
2: that's not called jumping into conclusions. Well,
0: they, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Maybe know. So. I, I didn't know so. this experiment. But, but it's so. really fun, right? How interesting to test little infants and get some kind of some kind of reliable indication that something's happening. Yeah. Just give it that.
1: So one of the really famous experiments was with teenagers, right? Do you know this, the, the held?
0: For, yeah.
1: Okay. Don't like that
0: one so much. You, well, okay. I, I'll put a spin on it. Because, okay. again, I'm a yeser. Yeah,
1: you know, okay. So this obviously ones. is delivering, this set of experiments delivers an answer that is not <laughs> his
0: answer. So, so the okay. infant's experiments suggest yes. Are we all on board with that? All you, oh, what? There's lots of people shaking their head. No. Okay. Fine. I think in, in the whole
2: time of history, people always are looking uh, at arguments that um, confirm the their no. meanings.
0: Yeah. the bias. I'm gonna. De- I'm not gonna deny that I'm slightly biased because I'm I'm a I'm a lover, not a hater. If that if that works. Yes.
1: Oh, will you wait till the microphone gets to you just so we can record it? Sure.
0: One more. <laughs> This is a very famous set of experiments by Richard Held.
1: Um, oh, yeah, let's set up the negative experiments first, and then can yeah, we take your first. Yeah, 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 because
0: okay. we need to have a balanced approach here. Although I think they actually support an affirmative answer. That look is the perfect look. Okay. As you might expect, uh, when you um, uh, couch a cataract or remove a cataract from someone's eyes, um, they can see shape, Whereas previously, they could only maybe uh, luminance, contrast, maybe pick up a couple colors. So Held did this with a lot of different subjects. And then he used Legos, like Lego shapes, as, um, and they were two distinct Lego shapes or several distinct Lego shapes as his stimulus rather than the nice sphere and cube as suggested by Molyneux. And they all failed to identify the shapes that they had previously been actually habituated to. But then he retried it, just like a day or two later, and they did identify the shapes. And even he concludes that the temporal immediacy, like if you test them right away, they'll fail, but they succeed so surprisingly quick, it suggests that there's already a pathway for transferring this information from touch to vision. But since it's disused, right, because they didn't have vision, it needs time to, in some sense, you know, get going, right? But the fact that there's this pathway there, he concludes as yes, which could be a way of answering yes to Maloney's question.
1: So yeah, it seems like the um, the experiments were really, really interesting. But it, it seems Probably possible yeah. for both camps to kind of query uh, the strength of the conclusions. Ready for your question now? If you, uh, the mic is just here, right? Okay.
3: I just wanted to ask if the babies saw the shapes and the pacifiers before the test, I mean, before the eye measurement took place, so that it wasn't just about feel.
0: That's such a good question. They were, as Melts Off uh, reports, visually naive. Um, so they were, they, they were very newborn, and they kind of kept them from actually seeing anything. Um, which you can imagine probably isn't, you know, the mother would have to give permission for this. So, yes, they were visually naive. So it, it was a new sight for them in general, but new, through the pacifiers in the shapes.
2: Are new worm babies able to um, keep the pacifier in their mouth already? Because that also takes some time. They true. put it out of the mouth.
0: That's true. It's
2: my experience.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'm, but some, some of them held on to that pacifier and were then tactually habituated but you're right after a little while they like like with the hand they spit it out so anyway
2: yeah also because of not able to um,
0: use the muscles of their lips or the mouth to keep it yeah so and deliberately so the mean these are all the right questions because again actually testing Manu's question is very difficult like it's such a nice general question, it rolls off the tongue, but then when you get into actually trying to do it.
1: Well, I suppose that explains why people just thought that this wasn't a possible
0: thing yeah. to, to, to test empirically.
1: Um, so can you tell us a bit about what ocularism is?
0: Yeah, well I did, and of course I'm, uh, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, but I don't have kind of the official word, okay? So um, if, you, if you think about Molyneux's question, Like, honestly, the way that it's posed, it's just posed for people with vision. Think about it. You don't even trust, you don't even ask the subject what they think until they've been given sight. And in fact, throughout the history of Manu's question, you have this kind of like terrible ocularism, if you might, where people with blindness are never Asked what they think They're never consulted And in fact um, they're, they're often thought of As other As in some sense Not real people There's even this interesting quote And I'm not going to tell you Which philosopher said it But they were very famous that, they lack, that people with blindness Lacked morality And the reason why Was because they couldn't Actually see Moral events um, Here's the quote um, They wouldn't know the difference Between a man Stabbed and bleeding Than a man making water Which means uh, Urination I think yeah, okay, so, now, so in other words They just didn't, tr- they, they didn't Treat people with blindness As if they're people Which is absolutely horrible But it's part of the history of this question And I think it's worth interrogating whether or not this question produces, in some sense, more prejudice, right, when we're thinking through it and trying to imagine what it's like to be blind and all of these kinds of questions. I think it's ill-put, just in general.
1: Yeah, so you can imagine where I'm heading now. So I don't know, on listening to this, Barry, do you find that, I mean, there just seems to be this really robust sense these people seem to have that they know exactly what it would be like to have these blind sort of perceptual experiences could you tell us a little bit about you know how you've your your own sort of personal story has impacted your thinking on that
4: yeah um it's interesting the attitudes um that brian's just mentioned about you know um sort of not having a moral compass or anything like that And I think, to be quite honest, I would know the difference of somebody who's been stabbed and somebody who's taking uh, a a pee up against a wall or something. So, um, just by the sound that they're actually making. Um, But, you know, uh, it's interesting that even in today's society, blind people can often be sort of seen as less intelligent and... um, you know, sort of not being able to fully participate uh, in life. So it's interesting that um, you know uh, attitudes still haven't really changed a great deal. Um, you know, for f- there was a major sort of shift in attitude for people from when I lost my sight. So you know, before I lost my sight at the age of 26, I worked as a a personal fitness trainer, sports instructor. And so therefore was always Barry the instructor. Three months later I went back to the place where I was working and several of the guys who were asking me about their training programs before wouldn't speak to me okay. because I was referred to as the blind man as opposed to Barry the sports instructor.
1: It seems amazing because what possibly could change in your capacity to advise someone I mean, on their you know physical health i mean that it's a knowledge-based practice right and why would it be the
4: case that well this is it you know i i could still tell them and and demonstrate sort of say weightlifting techniques and so on i couldn't see their form to see if they're making any bad mistakes that was the only issue you know so i always joke that it wasn't just my my eyes that were switched off it was my brain that was switched off Mm-hmm. and that's how people tended to uh, perceive me. So it took a bit of time to get used to that uh, perception, um, you know, because you could spiral out of control and get into deep depression. Yeah, I'm sure. Because
1: yeah. And then we're going to talk a bit more about your work specifically relating to, to the arts a bit later. But in terms of... So I guess I, one of the things I find the most interesting philosophically about this. In teaching it to students, I'll often say, you know, one of the things we're asking with the Molyneux question is sort of akin to or like the same kind of thing as asking someone who has the five senses working well to imagine having a sixth sense. So, you know, it's very difficult to, to begin to think about how to do that, right? You sort of tell somebody there's some additional way in which you can interact with the world. Uh, tell me what that would be like. So, As somebody who has lost their sight, do you think it was, you know, it was a possible thing to coherently imagine what it would be like to no longer be able to see while seeing, or do you think this kind of doesn't really make sense?
4: Um, for me, it was um, easy enough to know what it would be like not being able to see, because um, I've been rather careless in my life, I've regained my sight twice and lost it three times. So I'm actually looking for a sort of try and balance it out in the future. Um, but um, so, so therefore, you know, um, knowing that it wouldn't be the end of life if I lost my sight. Whereas for somebody who hadn't come from a blind background, you know, I went through the, the School for the Blind System in the UK uh, since the age of 12. Whereas somebody who has never known anybody who's visually impaired, it would be torment for them, and they would be panicking. Sure. One, one friend did say, uh, when I was losing my sight, when I was in my teens, he said, um, I wouldn't come out of the house if I knew I was losing my sight. Sort of, uh, but you know, that's because he'd never been um, sort of introduced to anybody who had a, had sight loss. So that, he felt, was, would be, you know... The, the be all and end all of his world if he had lost his sight
1: So I suppose you know, there is a sort of culture of fears and they're around different kinds of experience and then we, we do you know, as I guess humans who have sight depend on their sight so much that the idea of trying to figure out how you could get down the road or how you could do these various things becomes a sort of complicated thing for people to think about Okay, so at this point I'd like to open up to questions again if anyone has any Yeah, we've got one or two here So we're just, yeah, I guess we'll go one at a time since there's just two for now.
5: Thank you. <clears throat> but I must say that the more I listen to what you said, the more I feel puzzled. But anyhow, what you said, that the interaction between baby and the dad, reminded me of my experience. The first day my son was born. Because my wife really liked me to see my son. But then she told me that if the nurse feels okay, you can see him. So I get into that. Then the baby's room. The nurse says that, yes, there's your son. He's looking for his dad. But at the moment, I didn't realize it's a joke. But I, but when I see my son, I really think that she's, he's looking for me. I said, I'm here. But when I told my wife said, because she's a doctor, she said, that is nonsense. That is Because the first day, the baby couldn't open his eye. He, never, he couldn't know who are you. And when I discussed that with the nurse, she, she just gave me a smile. She, it is, it is clearly, she thinks that, that is impossible. But with the time going, but I, but I must say that the that moment I really saw my son is looking for me, but I'm not sure if that is true or is it imaginary. Uh, I, I, my question imaginary. To for you is that according to your theory, which is true, which is not true. Thank you.
1: Are you asking us to settle this argument between... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like she has a pretty robust negative response, doesn't she? Okay,
2: <laughs> I don't, anyone want to weigh I, in? I think uh, when the baby's in the womb, it can hear sounds, so perhaps your son recognized your voice.
5: Yeah, I I think that way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Although I think that his voice would somehow be different of course. if heard through an inch of flesh. Right? Um, so I'm not I don't know if it would. Maybe. But I, I, that is a worry that the acuity of an infant's eyesight is very low. And But, I mean, a lot of the work of the ba- holding the baby and uh, and the shapes is done within a, f- a foot and a half. And it's quite likely that the infant has acuity within a foot to 18 inches. Um, but whether or not... It would be so interesting if there was, like, some innate facial recognition of, of the father. But, uh, sadly, I think that would be the only way that he, it would the baby would actually recognize your face. I'm
1: afraid it's, it's not good news. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it sounds like your wife is uh, winning this one. Anyone else? Barry, do you have any thoughts?
4: Um, it's a bit too deep for me.
3: <laughs> okay, fair
4: enough.
1: And then another question there in the back. Any more questions? Okay, just keep your hand up if we've got a question and we'll come around to you in a minute. Okay.
6: You mentioned um, the senses and then you mentioned the sixth sense which I've always uh, considered as being the brain. And uh, my curiosity is um, if one were to divide the senses up into percentages, what percentage would you give to each of the senses? Now, most people would say, oh, 60% to my eyesight. If I lost my eyesight, I'd lose 60% 60 of my persona. I don't know. Um, but if you divide the 60, sorry, the, the 6 senses into, into 100, you'd get about 15% each. So I'm just wondering how much value do you give to your hearing, to your eyes, to your touch, to your smell, to your taste, and your brain?
1: Okay, so two kind of thoughts here maybe on, do we know much about statistics on how much people depend on one sense over the other? And then maybe it might be interesting to know, from Barry's point of view, having moved from sight into blindness, whether you feel like the way in which you use your other senses changed radically, and if so, which ones you depended on more than others.
0: So, feel free. (laughs) I I, I could provide a context for what I think Barry's answer is going to be, that the brain is very plastic, you know, that's the word that's used. Such that if you uh, uh, play music, right, uh, then I, I'm, I'm assuming that you would have a more developed and sophisticated auditory cortex. Uh, but if you're a visual artist and are able to distinguish colors very finely, right, you would perhaps have, a, have, have more use of the visual cortex. And then we do know that if you, if you blindfold yourself but engage in spatial activity, um, you'll actually recruit the visual cortex to do some of that spatial work, even though you're not using your eyes, so to speak. So it, I guess the tough thing is your brain is so plastic, it might not even be good to distinguish up the senses in this hard and fast way, right? And then of course, I mean, just to throw more confusion out there, you have synesthesia where you have two different senses in some sense trading tasks. Uh, a variety of other, and, and a variety of other issues. Can you but, give like a classic example of synesthesia? Or Oh, someone who uh, sees uh, letters as colored. So, and it could be that somebody in the audience has synesthesia but doesn't know it yet. Hmm. This is a very common thing where days of the week are colored, numbers are colored. It's called grapheme. Grapheme.
1: It's probably quite hard to separate the senses out in the way you would want to for that question as well, right? So it's, you know, it's rarely the case that you're only using one at a time. But I might just go to Barry in case you have any thoughts on this.
4: Um, well, I'm always uh, one for statistics. So I was uh, told that um, through tests, uh, humans, uh, 77% of um, uh, their sort of senses is, is taken in through their, their eyes. Although... Um, it 's much smaller that the actual information taken in is something like about ten percent, so you know you you leave you lose a lot of um, what you visually see um, for For me once I lost my sight, my hearing just didn 't go click so sort of I can hear quite well. you have to develop it um, so you know, I, I remember walking down Great Portland Street, tapping away sort of, uh, with my white stick at the time, and then have, crouching down because I thought I was going to get hit by a lorry coming down. Because for the first time, the sound bounced off of the wall, and that confused me. And I thought I was in the middle of the road as opposed to on the pavement and that's because I was using my hearing more because I didn't have to use my sight because I couldn't use my sight. So it's just sort of developing those senses in in different ways. You you know, uh, in in a nice room like this, I can actually hear quite well, but if um, everybody started talking and and so on, then I'd I'd struggle to hear and, and to be able to orientate. So, you know, it's a case of the environment, it uh, impacts greatly on, on sort of um, how we use those senses um, sort of differently.
2: And uh, how long does it take to, to develop your other senses, to, to improve them?
4: Um, my sense of smell is 26 years and going because okay. I have a poor sense of smell. Um, Whereas my hearing is not bad, I say, but it depends upon uh, the environment. Um, my sense of touch is quite good. I learned to read Braille from the age of 12, although I'm very slow with it. And also I'm a trained masseur as well. Um, so therefore I developed my sense of touch. Okay. But for some people, they never develop. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, why that is, I don't know.
2: Okay. But it does take weeks, months, years? <laughs>
4: Well, it's constantly developing. So, um, and of course, like everybody, I'm getting older. So, where my hearing might have been better when I was younger, it may not be as good now. So, you know, it impacts. I know that um, I I hate lots of sound these days. I'm very intolerant lots of sounds. Probably for the, some of the music my daughter plays. Oh. Um, do
1: you so, want to shame any musical artists this evening?
4: Oh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I, um, you know, uh, she used to think, hate my rock music, but I must say I hate some of the modern stuff. Okay,
1: fair enough. Okay, I know we had another question here, and then one here. There. Okay.
7: It's just really a comment based on what was earlier discussed about babies and, and hearings, which is not necessarily relevant to sight. But I, I do recall an experiment, and unfortunately, I can't remember uh, give, provide an academic reference for it. But
1: we haven't uh, done that, so I mean, you feel yeah, no pressure. But the, uh,
7: the um, uh, they, they took they did an experiment of a number of babies, um, and they took a whole bunch of them, and they split them up between uh, ones where their mother had been watching the TV programme, I believe it was Neighbours, during the pregnancy, and ones that hadn't and then shortly after the babies were born, um, they played the theme tune of the music to neighbors, to the babies, Uh, and so what reaction was, and the result of this experiment was that the babies whose mothers had listened to neighbors or watched neighbors were pacified by the, uh, the, more pacified by the the theme tune than ones they hadn't, because then the The discussion was that mothers who watched it when they were pregnant were probably calm at the point when they were watching the program, you know, when they're pregnant, sitting down, relaxing, and the babies might have... You know, so that was the experiment, but I don't know how relevant it is to Molino's problem. But it, it was relevant to the early hmm. discussion. That's
1: really interesting, and I really hope that the podcast will cut to the to the appropriate theme music. <laughs> um but, Do you guys have any thoughts on that? It seems like there's something like the, the familiarity is is the thought that something they've experienced
0: before. It's a classic philosophical question: How much does the fetus inside the womb actually perceive from outside the mother? Um, and if you're a blank slate theorist like Locke, which I think very few of us still exist—not that I am one—my gosh, um, you, you, any information that the baby has when it comes out, you just say, "Oh, it came from when it was in the womb," right? So you can see how it could be a motivated kind of discussion point. But is Neighbors a British show, by the way? Oh gosh, now I'm very embarrassed. Yeah, very.
1: Any other thoughts on this kind of audible stuff? Okay, and then maybe one more question, and we'll get back to the content, and then we'll have some more questions at the end again. Uh, so, this
8: in the navy hoodie. You... Thank you. So, two questions. Uh, the the first one is be, beyond helping us understand, you know, the tabula rasa versus learning by. Uh, I mean, we are innately rational beings in everything. Question: What are the social applicabilities? Like, what what, what does the Moline, like the answer or the, the efforts to answer News problem what does it help us with in our in our social day to day life one <coughs> to, do, do you think it's fair to compare babies who have, who have just been born within like 30 hours 10 hours 40 hours Versus adults who have had to deal with shapes like the, the the shape of their bed, the shape of their plate, and everything on a daily basis. Do you think we can make any sound conclusions by comparing two extremely different uh, subjects? Thank you.
1: Okay, so two really good questions. The first of which uh, might be easier to answer. So I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on this? So what is the the benefit, or what could the practical I guess if I was going to answer, I would just say it seems to me that philosophers find it really interesting to think about. It yeah. It just it seems to be, like yeah.
0: it's intrinsically interesting for me, <laughs> which is true partially for me. I mean, it's like a curse that we have. But practically speaking, if if we think about it in the context of of blindness, of of lived blindness, it helps us reimagine disability. It helps us to rethink it. And to, in some sense, confront our biases that we might have. Like, if going blind is really the scariest thing you can imagine, like, think about that. It, is it? Why? Why is that so scary to you? I mean, it's an honest question that I ask myself when I think through Molyneux's questions. So I think there's beneficial so- social applications in that it gets a conversation going when we think about disability, ocularism, and such things. Um, in addition, it's, it's art- artistically, I think it's really interesting what it would be like if, say, you're an artist, you're a visual artist or something like this, and you're like, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to put a constraint on my vision and just touch Shapes that I've never seen before they could be very complex shapes and then try to draw them from touch alone Right, so there, there have been artists that have done something like this and note how it can stimulate really novel ideas About the nature of shape Right. Oh man. The dog does not like that example <laughs> But I I do want to hear more about art and how is there is there a social benefit to think about Monlu's question in art museums or
4: Barry? Um, there is benefit because um, for uh, just the creativity uh, for people um, so because also we consider that uh, the vast majority of people actually lose their sight later in life as opposed to being born with a visual impairment. So they may have gone through art and design classes um, or it might be of an interest for them. So why stop because you lose your sight? At the V&A, um, some of our most popular um, workshops for visually impaired people are painting in watercolours and photography. Um, so, and some of these, some of our visitors are totally blind. So some people may say, what do you get out of that? Well, the enjoyment of doing it you know i have actually gone into more into photography since i've lost my sight than before it drives my wife mad when i come home with <laughs> uh, sports uh, photos uh, to put on the wall <laughs> and so and, and the question of friends said, but why are you buying all of those you can't see them but the fact is they've been described to me it's in my head and that's the picture i've drawn so you know, um, so you know, arts and, and and visual arts is is just because it's it can actually take you somewhere in your own imagination.
1: So I'm just going to get back to the second part of that question as well, is about comparing data on oh, yeah. newborns to mature perceivers. So. Uh, I don't know if,
0: if anyone else wants to weigh in on that, but then we'll get around to the... Perhaps you
2: can repeat the question. Oh, yeah. me.
0: So I, so I gave the example of these infants, and he's like, hey, that's not fair. Uh, infants have a different kind of brain structure than the type of subject that Molyneux was interested in, you know, which is a man born blind. Of course, I'm sure he was fine with gender differences, right? Um,
1: but like a sophisticated, sophisticated mature receiver. Yeah. You know,
0: and you might imagine a geometer or somebody with mathematics you know, to try to kind of push the idea. So I don't... I, fairness? Who's, who cares about fairness? This is truth, man. That would be my initial response. I don't know. Am I being too hostile here? Um, it,
5: yeah.
8: Why
5: would
8: I, compare? Sorry. I, I don't think you're hostile. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, like my research methods professors would be the first ones to tell me, "Hey, you are comparing to extremely heterogeneous uh, sample, you know, su- su- like su- subjects." So when it comes to learning ability and everything, why would I compare somebody that's sophisticated, rationally trained, empirically? with a newborn child who who have never been told what's what. And the level of distinctness between the two examples, like the level of distinctness between that cube and that sphere, and the bumpy pacifier and the smooth pacifier, the level of distinctness is quite different in my my head, so.
2: I think you don't have to compare those two groups, but that it's just another way uh, of thinking about Molyneux problem. And what is interesting to see is that first it's a, a hypothetical question, and then science evolves. And psychology is, of course, a new branch in science from the 19th century, something like that. And then people try uh, to do experiments on, uh, with animals, also with chimpanzees and, and uh, dogs and other other animals. So it's it's more that. Uh, you have changes in the way to look at uh, Molyneux problem and that's just quite interesting and it's not that you compare those two groups but just another way of looking at the question
0: yeah just to back this up by the way this is your, she wrote the most amazing book in the 90s which holds a very different view that there's only one question and there's only one way to answer it no and I've spent my career trying to show that that's not true So for her to go back a little bit, I'm crying inside of happiness. But anyway, I I don't recognize myself in what he's saying.
3: Perhaps,
0: (laughs) perhaps somewhere I
2: said, if you are very strict, then it's impossible to answer the question. But it's not. Well, yes, we win or no, we win. It's just seeing very different ways of looking at it and learning by it quite other things that you were not expecting and I think that's nice of, of science you have a question and good science uh, uh, attracts more questions and then you follow them so
0: yeah I mean I'm being kind of facetious here but the, the idea is that this is a muse for experimentation for trying to understand the nature of the senses and how they relate to one another and in that sense uncovering the mystery of the mind so to You know, to answer, to to find an answer to Malinu's question isn't the goal, right? And that's why, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, anybody that knows research methodology would be really upset with this cross comparison with all these different variables in play. But if you think of it as a muse, I mean, uh, this guy at MIT, uh, Margata Sir, um, rerouted ferret auditory cortex into the somatosensory into touch so he basically rerouted the things that were coming in from a ferret's ear to their touch and vice versa on the basis or inspired by molyneux's question he made these franken ferrets so i mean you, you can see how it like promotes experimentation and yeah Do you think
2: like research
1: ethics could be an interesting part of the history of this problem as
2: well? And it's often in life, it's not uh, especially the goal, but the way you go that makes life interesting and also with
3: this question.
1: Okay, so then, Ari, a lot of sort of more uh, artistic and design-related ideas kind of emerge from some of the key thoughts in this. And I know a significant part of your work concerns access issues with art and design. Um, Would you mind telling us a little bit about some of your work at the V&A? Yeah. Um,
4: so traditionally in museums, we lock uh, objects away in cases. So for blind people such as myself, what is the point in going to a museum if everything's in a case? You know, you can have somebody describe an object to you and, until the cows come home, but you don't really get a great deal out of it. So one of the things that uh, we've done at the V&A is uh, puts quite a few objects on open display not replica objects but original objects so um, if you ever come to the vna please do come um, in our in our tt uh, T. Choi gallery of, of chinese art we have an original ming vase on open display that anybody can touch oh. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> <That's> interesting. <laughs> and we've had to put in a large block of concrete so people don't walk off with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, because obviously we, we, we don't just have to conserve our objects, we have to make sure they're safe for people to be able to sort of see in, in, in the future. So, you know, we, we've introduced um, sort of those touch objects. In the past, we've introduced... Um, of fragments and and bits of material to highlight part of the collection in the cases nearby and to be quite honest I find there's very little learning from any of those fragments so uh, one piece we have in our medieval renaissance gallery is a piece of leather okay it's a piece of leather I've worn leather jackets in the past, so why did you put a piece of leather in a, a national museum? When I, um, well, several years before I actually started at the V&A, I participated in a focus group um, to look at new interpretation for our British galleries. And the vision impaired group, which I was in, were offered six blocks of wood. And we're told, you can feel the different grains in this wood, we said, okay, yeah, you can feel it. But what do these blocks relate to? What do the objects say? Well, you know, we've got sort of um, uh, an oak balustrade. Well, can I see the oak balustrade? No, n- that's in the case. Well, it's pointless having these blocks of wood. And we said, don't bother putting them in. There's no real interpretation there.
1: It's the thought they're trying to give you some small piece of something and then they hope that with having the relevant kind of touch experience that when you have the thing explained to you because as you say you can't touch it you'll have this extra bit of relevant information or what do you think is the
4: thinking I personally I think it was lazy interpretation Okay. (laughs) um, because they thought oh well you know these things have texture what we do a lot in museums is try and conserve our objects so when these blocks were actually put into the gallery against our our advice, they were actually varnished. A varnish was put on. So the grains they wanted us to be able to fill, we can't, because we've got the varnish.
1: Who is the varnish for, though?
4: Well, it's to protect the, uh, the object. Oh, okay. <laughs> so as I've put in some articles in the past, they had no learning at the, in the, at the outset. They definitely don't have any learning now because they're just <laughs> blocks of varnished wood. Um, so I'd rather have had a chair made out of a certain wood um, and, and so on so therefore you can understand the, the woods and the grains and how some woods can be carved some woods can't so it was just sort of you know, um, lack of understanding of what you wanted the, the visitor to get out of those objects so that's why I say it was sort of lazy interpretation
1: and then with the so with the Ming piece, how do you stage something like that? So do you have to... I mean, does it have to be on the softest possible material, or how do
4: people interact with it? You can... Okay, you, you can just walk up to it in the gallery, touch it with your hands. We do say, take your rings off, and that's so... But in 17 years, I've not taken either of my rings off to touch the object. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> um, Hopefully, no V&A curators in here tonight are going to listen to the podcast because yeah. <laughs> I'll be in trouble. Um, but um, so you know, but um, we we just allow people some of our objects which are on open display but aren't normally allowed to be touched. So some of our Rodin sculptures, for example, for our visually impaired groups, we give them gloves to touch the objects. Now this throws up uh, another sort of debate of you know how much benefit is touching an object with gloves than touching with your hands, bare hands. Obviously, it'd be nice to be able to touch with your bare hands, but then the curators wouldn't allow us to touch the objects. So I say I'd rather touch with the gloves than not touch at all. So therefore, I can get to understand a bit about an object. Because I've had an object described to me, and they say, oh, it's, it's this, this, and this. And I touch it and think it's much larger than what's been described to me. So you know, being able to understand the uh, the object and uh, in its entirety, um, because people, you know, you might say six inches, you may say twenty centimeters. Well, there's a couple of inches difference there. If if you put it into whichever. Um, sort of number you want to um, so you know it, it's um, it's just nice to be able to touch it's a shame that we can't touch um, without having to wear gloves but that's a small price to pay to you know who, who in in this room and you may have to shout out to point it's putting your hand up because I won't see who's been able to touch an original Rodin sculpture
1: nope we are me. not allowed. Uh, to. I'm not seeing
4: any hands either. Yeah. So, so you know, so uh, fortunately with the gloves, I've had that benefit of being able to do that.
2: Okay. And, and what's your opinion about copies? Because then you can feel the structure. If you have an, an object, a uh, sculpt of a sculpture, you you can feel. Often when I see a uh, uh, or another. When I, I want to touch it, I don't do it because there are people looking around for not doing sure. it. But if I would be able, sure, I, I do. And if you have, see little children, first thing they want to do, touch it.
4: Yeah. Um, the problem we have in museums is lack of storage for objects. Yeah. And then if we create, say, a 3D image of um, an object, where are we going to store that? So, um, you know, for example, we've got about four and a half million objects in storage in the v and um, If we produce another sort of hundred objects, we're going to struggle to, you know, to put them, them in storage. So I think it's always nice to be able to touch the original. At times that's not possible because of the fragility of some of the objects and so on. Um, So we we can do other things, sort of uh, raised images and and so on, and and using different materials and put in context. So, but it is always nice to try and touch the original, um, to to get that because, you know, we are a museum of originals. You know, um, I I personally don't really want to go and sort of work in a a museum of three D objects. Um, because it's not an original museum.
1: I suppose when you think about why people travel all around the world to go look at a painting in the case of you know, sighted people, it's, it's because there's something exclusive about having this sort of intimate connection with a really special object. And I guess you know, if maybe you know, you've got to try and provide that experience, yeah. the intimacy and the closeness, but without it, you know, without yeah, it. It's a
4: social experience. That you know, we all want to go with our family and friends to visit uh, museums. You know, after losing my sight, um, I, I've always been a big football fan, and my team have just become champions of Europe.
1: <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> and, <laughs> uh,
4: on the Saturday night, and and I didn't want to stop going to the football. And people say, "But you can't see." I said, "Yeah, but I've always gone to the football." I want to, and I can get a commentary in the grounds and so on. So, therefore, I can go to the game, I can have those same discussions with my friends about the penalty, which was definitely a penalty on Saturday night. Um, so, um, you know, I can have those discussions, just like when you come to the likes of the museum, somebody describes a painting to you, and you might say, I like that, or I don't like it. You know, we 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 have those choices, and I, for me, it's all about choice. So, um, you know, personally, um, I wouldn't enter a museum in my own free time. I'd rather go to the football. <laughs> but but I know people that would hate to go to the football and like to go to museums. So it's it's per, people's own choice.
1: Do you have much experience of people designing with a blind audience in in mind,
4: or is that who's the V&A is involved with or... um, It depends upon work, which designer you actually work with. Um, some, some people and some designers will talk uh, to vision-pair groups to understand um, sort of how to create a decent tactile image. I worked with a, a group of uh, former students from MIT And they created uh, a painting from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And the only thing that I couldn't distinguish was of these two people on this uh, picture. And they had a hand across the chest, and I thought the fingers were sort of a pattern on the tunic. I didn't need any other description for all that. The V&A has a uh, raised loin drawing of Crystal Palace, and so much detail has been put into this raised line drawing. And then we have a braille key on the side, sort of A, B, C, and D, sort of for different sort of parts of the, um, the building. And then from, say, like A, you've got a line taking you into the, the image, and as soon as you get to the edge of the image, you lose your line because you're in a line drawing. So what was the purpose in doing that? because, you know, it looks visually tactile, but when you actually use it as a tactile piece, it, it's, it's just a waste of time. There's just too much information in there.
1: So something gets lost in translation, so yeah. you have people maybe who are sighted thinking about what they would want if it was them doing it, and then... Yeah. So the problem is the A is picking out some part of the work of art. When you try and follow it to the place it's supposed to go to, you get bamboozled by so many other lines.
4: Yeah. And I'm told that I've got good sense of touch, and yet I can't make head and tail of this image. So for people who lose their sight later in life, haven't developed their touch. And of course, as you get older, the sensitivity in your fingers reduces somewhat. So to be able to sort of interpret that piece is near impossible.
1: Okay, even in sort of yeah near ideal conditions. Yeah. So I'm wondering. Okay, I know we had a question over here coming, and then I'm wondering, to get any others? Okay, one in the green, one at the back. Okay, so uh, the first one is here. Is... Uh, yep. Yeah, oh, sorry. No, this woman here in stripes. Yeah. And then,
3: uh, can you grab the microphone? You... <laughs> yeah. Has the molyneux problem ever been done in reverse? I'm thinking. I believe in the VNA. There's a tactile version of Turner's Breachers' Boy. Um, and if I, when I tried to match it to what I saw, I couldn't do it. So I was curious if this has all been what happens if you regain your sight. What would happen if people tried to get people to identify things that they had seen, but could now only touch? Okay. I, th- I think there are
2: different, uh, many uh,
3: uh,
2: inverse versions of Molnus' question in, in, the, in the whole of history. And uh, if I make also a connection with a museum, last week I was at an exhibition in uh, Rotterdam about Bauhaus. And at the, the entrance of the uh, exhibition, there were all pieces uh, of different materials which you could touch. And I saw them, and I touched them, and then I closed my eyes, and I tried, tried but I really couldn't make up of a lot of uh, the materials, what it was. So that I think that that's nice. And uh, they taught at the Bauhaus just to get rid of all kinds of biases uh, you have and just feel what you can feel, look at what you can see. Uh, and that I think that's a good kind of educational system.
0: I know you know of one case. Yeah, there is a single case uh, from a philosopher who was uh, blind. He was a Malinbranch scholar in the early 20th century, and he wrote an entire book trying to under well try to trying to help uh, people with vision to understand that people with blindness were real people, and he posed Malinowski's question in exactly the way that you suggested um, that you imagine a man born without touch but able to see and familiar with the shapes of sphere and a cube by sight alone but if he were made to touch made to be able to feel would he identify the shapes at first touch and he said no way it takes a lot of training to train the touch to distinguish shape that was his answer so very good question it would
1: be interesting if somebody said yes on one and then no on the other,
0: I, I would try to say yes. Uh,
1: I know we have a question here in the green, and then we we'll
9: next. Hi, yes. um, I was just wondering, um, is it, do you think that we're like, fascinated by sight and we accord like, a lot of importance to it because of the studies that, like the, the questions we try to answer about it? If there, are there like other like, philosophical questions about other senses? And also, more to Barry, um, what do you think is something maybe we like, don't appreciate um, enough or as much when we have sites that you've personally like, come to appreciate more? Or do you have any kind of, um, not advice, but things to like, maybe look to, to appreciate more?
4: Uh, for me, um, people to appreciate. Their ability to be able to see um, and I say this because once I lost my sight, I always said before I lost my sight, I used the small bit of sight that I had better than any sighted person because I had to look for visual clues to go from A to B and so on. I had to sort of um, sort of develop. Um, sort of ways of being able to see objects more clearly. So I felt I used my site more efficiently um, than uh, the, the most sighted people. Um, you know, so it's, it's a case of just appreciating the site. I think possibly why um, a lot of the... Um, there's lots of research into sites and possibly lots of sites is because, as Brian mentioned earlier, about people being scared of losing their sight and thinking that, you know, it's the worst sense to lose. Um, you know, for me at the moment, the worst sense for me to lose is my hearing because then I'm deafblind. So, um, so losing my sight isn't too much of a fear at the moment. But, um, but yep, so just the appreciation of sight and, and, and using it efficiently
1: it does seem like philosophers are pretty obsessed with sight, so I can think of a few other thought experiments, like Mary in the black and white room, that might be familiar to people as well.
0: Do you know, I can't think off the top of my head, of any ones that really focus on hearing? or. No, I I can't really think of any long-standing thought experiments like Molyneux's question, but I think Molyneux's question avails itself, right, to different senses. Um, uh, So this is the opportunity for you, Right, as, dare I say, baby philosophers think about Maldo's question for the first time, perhaps, saying, hmm, how can this help me think better about audition or about taste? Um, maybe you could do this same thought experiment with tasting coffee. Or what's that horrible stuff that people eat in Australia? How interesting that you knew what I was thinking. Um, I've never had it before. Would I be able to, you know, know it? I don't even want you know. You know, run them all. No, but that does seem
1: interestingly different, right? To say that if you if you'd never had taste before, would you be? And you turned on somebody's taste, would you be able, based on? I mean, that seems like an easier thing to say. And if you do
0: like Vegemite, I didn't mean to create a hostile environment. (laughs) I apologize. Okay, and
4: we we have another. Oh, yeah, it's a bit like Marmite, Vegemite. You either like it you don't. Yeah, yes. Is that the English version? Because yeah. I've never had that either.
1: It's certainly a, a galvanising sort of philosophical <laughs> topic. Uh, another question there in the back?
10: I thought it was very interesting at the beginning how about half the audience thought one thing and the other half thought the other and a proportion of thought like me, we couldn't decide. And maybe, in fact, theoretically, all answers are right. And that's why we have a problem and you could imagine, I mean, think of these ferrets that were rerouted. Um, you could imagine that if you, if you if you have the philosophical position that our brains are functioning because of the structure they have at this particular moment, how do you arrive at that structure? So you could imagine a tabula rasa, uh, uh, an amorphous thing which is being structured by something coming in from outside, or you could imagine something which is genetically programmed by the genes that are inherited from, from parents that have actually experienced the environment and been selected for an advantage of understanding it before they actually get, get the first impression. So the question really is, is there anything of, of a brain structure which can only be established in one or other of those ways? If there isn't anything, then all those answers are possible and they may apply in different species.
0: That very, very. <laughs> that's that is. I think the narrow question that a lot of philosophers are trying to deal with, and um, as was mentioned before, Adam Smith notes that baby chicks, straight out of the egg, know exactly the difference between little bits of food and little bits of gravel, suggesting that we can give them a pass, a yes to Malnou's question. Because that would be the the chick news question, as it were, but then yeah, you would have to you know vary it across different species. Could it be that chimpanzees um, would they pass the test? What about parrots? You know, what would uh, Alex? Uh, I guess Alex has passed away, but what would Irene Pepperberg's new parrot do with respect to the interaction between uh, uh, you know sound and sight? So I think you're right on track with that question, and that's. I think what most philosophers are after. What are the innate neurostructures that avail this quick transfer between the different senses?
1: Oh, gosh. Wait one second sec for the mic.
0: Yeah. I did my best.
10: I'm really asking, is there something which can only be established by one route or the other?
0: Which is not quite the same question, I think. Yeah, you're right. It is... Uh, I, I, I just made your question, which is incredibly hard, as easy as I possibly could. And so we'll just leave it as you have posed the hard Molyneux question. I love it.
10: So what I would suggest is that some some, uh, species are designed to inhabit a predictable environment. So those chicks maybe have a predictable environment because their grains are on on sandy soil or something. Whereas other, other creatures have a complicated environment and each creature has actually an individual experience. Yeah, that'll no. be the that'll be so each, each species has the most efficient way of dealing with the environment it's expecting to see.
0: Well yeah, and I and I think again that would suggest that there should be a yes answer to Molinu's question for infants that are not closely raised by their parents, like chicks. Whereas for other infants, like human infants, you wouldn't anticipate, perhaps, that they would have quick transfer. Because, after all, they are closely raised by their parents. So there could be an evolutionary basis for which, which species gets what, as it were. But you have posed, I think, really the fine, the granule question. Granule question. Thank you.
1: It certainly seems like it, we need to be cautious about how we interpret experiments on different kinds of things rather than the specific thing the question is about so we've got like a nice theme coming in there okay we are out of time i'm afraid so all it remains for me to do is to thank our panelists
7: thank you guys